Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This time on The Art of Rave, I'm joined by Felix Buxton. One half of the legendary Basement Jacks. Over the last three decades, they've crushed Chicago and New York House with Raga, infused punk with Garage, and managed to organise chaos in their six studio albums. From throwing raves in abandoned South London Mexican joints to the massively influential debut album Remedy, their Ibiza Glitterbox residency in between headlining Glastonbury and winning a Grammy and two Brit Awards... It's been a journey like no other. Basement Jacks, Felix Buxton. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody out there in the world. <laughs> Hope you're, you're breathing, smiling, living, loving, because we're all alive and we've got to celebrate this life. <laughs> this is going to be a good podcast, I can tell. Uh, <laughs> let me give you some background on my fandom and my fangirly moments of Basement Jacks. I remember my sister, my big sister, giving me her um, computer tower, um, probably back in 2005, so I'd have been 11, maybe 2004, Um, and I remember she had bought Basement Jacks the Singles. And that's where my love for Basement Jack started. I remember listening to all of those tunes and knowing them all as well. It wasn't like any of them were like new to me, but it was like all of those songs that I'd heard over the last 10 years of being on this earth um, kind of compiled into, into one amazing um, album. And then as I grew up, I think the album to do it for me was Scars back in 2009. And that was amazing for me because in 2009, I probably would have been about 15, 16. Can't do the maths. But I remember mm-hmm. me and my friends listening to that. And um, my favourite song on that was actually the Paloma Faith tune, What's a Girl Gotta Do? Oh, yeah. I just loved how it was just something I'd never heard before in terms of it was an actual song, but it was on a very different not like a pop production that you would ever hear. And I suppose it mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, and then you had the Sam Sparrow stuff and, and all of that. I I fucking loved that album. Um, and obviously it's kind of been a widespread of, of albums f- for you. Can you 
Can you tell me where it all started for you and where you met Simon and and how this kind of incredible sound all started? Well, um, I came to London in 91. Uh, so basically, I was I left school in 1988, which was the summer of love, uh, which was uh, the time of Acid House. Uh, musically, it was an amazing time. It was very open. House music was new. And it was, um, yeah, I remember in 1987, in, in the school break time, someone with a, a, a ghetto blaster playing a tape, cassette, and, um, and we all stood around and it was house, 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 house nation. And that's what, which was the, the house master boys. And uh, it sounded so fresh and it was kind of, um, yeah, it was like a, a computer had gone wrong and um, it just <laughs> sounded like ridiculous, like a really different, different style of music. And that was really exciting. And um, yeah, so so probably my, my love for um, dance music, well, yeah, I don't know. I've always loved dance music. Um, well, I used to love all doing the okie which is like <laughs> we all do the okie when I was five years old probably, and I love Mozart and I love waltzes and, and Strauss and kind of gypsy music. And uh, so I liked ten- the Charleston and kind of 1930s music. Uh, I really like that. And, um, and probably because growing up my dad was a vicar and... Um, Right. Yeah, so so uh, Sunday lunch times, after we'd all been to church and I'd sung in the choir, me and my two sisters, um, and then yeah, then he put down he'd put old time musical music on, um, which was on the radio at that time, and sometimes if it was really good and and the spirit took him, he'd get up and start having a, a dance around and yeah, so it was kind of dancing was quite natural and uh, it was kind of. Yeah, him and my mum met at the Young Farmers dancing together. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cute. That's how, it, <laughs> that's how I suppose it was back in the day before uh, before all this horrible dating stuff that's online and Tinder exactly. and all that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, he said he, he saw her when he was 14 and he saw, thought, oh, that's my wife, that's fine. So, uh, oh. But he, he thought, leave it a few. He was quite a mature kid, I think. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then a few years later, yeah, um anyway that's that's by the by but um so my my love of dance music it was probably when I f- was first going out dancing when I was 17 and uh and I learned to drive I lived in the midlands and um your east midlands right uh well leicester I was born in leicester and um and I lived in a a village in the countryside ibstop there was a mining village and then woodhouse eaves which was like a posher village so I got two kind of experiences and um yeah, which is good, but in in when I turned seventeen, my mum got a car, so which I could use this Winnie with uh, a mini with fat wheels, and um, <laughs> which which is, was important to me at that point, and um, yeah, so me and some friends, uh, we drove to Leicester and to Nottingham. Nottingham, there was um, I never knew actually at the time, but Graham Park, who was very much part of the Manchester scene, he used to DJ there. I never knew the who the, who the DJ was wasn't important in those days because often they'd be behind a wall and you couldn't even see them. The, right. Maybe they had a little cutout bit so that they could see what was happening or see if the lights were flashing or not. 
Like an, but, a bird watching box. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and um, and in those times, also is um, Cool Cat in Nottingham as well, where they used to fill the whole place with smoke, so you couldn't see at all in in the dance floor. And then they'd put on the strobe, so it was kind of it was basically like having a fit. <laughs> and um, and probably if you were likely to have epileptic fits, it was not the place to go. But um. And the the smoke was banana flavor, and uh, banana flavored smoke. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and that's where kind of acid dancing started, where people started putting their hands in front of the face like this, right? Because actually they were looking at their fingers flashing in the smoke, and um and and yeah, we didn't have any money really, so we had enough money to get in. We never bought a drink. Uh, at the end of the night, I used to go up to the the bar and say, could I get a glass of water because I'm thirsty? And uh, Which is really funny. And we danced like from, I suppose it opened at maybe 10 or 9.30 something. So we'd get on the dance floor and we wouldn't leave till 3.30 when the door shut uh, because it was the <laughs> completely music. Completely sober. Yeah, yeah, completely sober. <laughs> uh, but you had all this smoke and, and the vibe was very good. And it was like maybe a club culture kind of exploded then as, a, as an right. idea. So definitely when I was in Leicester, a place called the Bear Cage, that I think it was their first acid party and where every single record was acid house, which was very weird at the time. All nyep, 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 nyep. It, no one knew what to make of it, which was so exciting. And um yeah, but I remember going there in Leicester Town Centre and um there was uh, in those days, I mean, we talk about violence and how society is now. But, I mean, I there was like a gang in Leicester called the Baby Squad. They're all about 14. There'd be about 40 to 50 of them in a pack. And they all had knives. And I remember them kind of shouting wanker at me. Because at that time, if you were into clubbing and alternative culture, it was a, a definite kind of, it meant you were into peace and love and, and right. kind of, which wasn't cool on the on the football terraces until about 1988 when they all started doing pills and that actually got rid of lots of violence. So, which I thought was kind of a a new summer of love, kind of 1960s, and um, which was really exciting. And um, I went to uni in 88 and I started putting on parties with a couple of friends there and I started this Peace and Love Society uh, which was the idea that we'd kind of dance for, for peace and love, just me and a couple of um, female friends that I met when we first got there, who I'm still good friends with now. And, um, yeah, so we did the psychedelic groove, but we didn't play any psychedelic music. We had some real hippies came, and they were like, where's the psychedelic music, man? <laughs> and, uh, um, well, we actually didn't really know what, what that was. We wanted to play acid house and hip-hop, and so you'd play funk, hip-hop, acid house anything that was new it didn't really matter what the genre was the kind of there wasn't the the idea that you had to be into a certain thing um and it was just very much about dancing and and probably then you'd see a lot of like also there was a jazz dance scene that was happening at the same time so i used to go and do jazz dance and you'd do kind of you'd do the splits and pirouettes and and you'd try and out dance each other with jewels kind of Jazz Jewels, like the Cotton Club that was a film from maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe the 1950s. But, yeah, so that, that musically that was a great time. And, and actually, uh, if I think 
with my mum's Mini one time, I think maybe one of the first times I, I, I got to drive it, I and mean, it wasn't my friends picking me up that, that I was actually driving. And, um, and I remember there, and I, I put on the radio, and, and I remember hearing DJ Easy Rock and uh, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock, uh, It Takes Two. And it was, it was so amazing because it was, um, well, it's, woo, yeah, woo, yeah, really energetic. The and James uh, Brown sample, right? Uh, well, it's from uh, It Takes Two to Make a Thing Go Right. It's the, the funky people. Uh, I'll tell you in a minute. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's James Brown, funky people, Lynn Collins. And yeah, I should know Apparently, this. I used to know in this. my crib sheet, it says uh, James Brown produced 1972 single Think a Brackets About It by Lynn yeah. Collins. Yeah, I think we should right. hear it. This is Rob Bass and DJ, DJ Easy Rock. It Takes Two. Do you put this in your set still? Do you uh, ever no, put this in? No, Do you no. not? Um, I mean, it all exists. Everything's available out there for anyone. You can listen to what you want, when you want. <laughs> I mean, in, in those... In those days, with when I first started DJing, which was in 1988, actually the that was at uni in my first year. Um, there was a a charity party called No More Bullshit that this guy put on, and it was for blind awareness. And um, uh, and so basically, I was asked to DJ, and I said, "Well, I don't have any records or anything." But they said, "But you're really into music and dancing and everything." And I. Yeah, so what I did was borrow records and tape cassettes. So I played one record, one tape cassette. And I, yeah, I could well have played that. I probably played the Lynn Collins one, but you try and play the hip hop version and then you play the original sample together. So it kind of all joined all the dots. But, and then the, so I played the dance music and the guy playing next was Tom York, Radiohead. So no he was way. playing, he was playing the indie music. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So let me just rewind. You were mixing from, from a cassette tape. Yeah. And a vinyl. Yeah. And How... and also I'd never done it in my life before. <laughs> <laughs> but people said you but all you have to do with DJing, you start one and and then stop it and start another and you try and blend the join. That's all DJing is. It's no big fancy thing. Is it easier with hip hop then? Because I've, I've is uh, it easier well, to match up the beats or uh, probably drum and beat drum and bass is probably harder because it's so fast. I I don't know. Um, yeah, very slow music is a lot easier. Yeah, right, got you. So you were—that's <laughs> that's mad. So how old were you at this point? Like eighteen, nineteen. Eighteen, nineteen. Yeah. So, so you've been um, going sober raving at seventeen, which I think is so easy to do when you're that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been to many raves actually, completely sober, drinking water all night just because I love the music. And mm -hmm. I think if you're that into it at that age, all you want to do is kind of go out and be there all night, not and and just enjoy the experience rather than getting off your tits and doing all of that. Yeah. Um, although that did come on, that, that did come later for me, but. Um, I think 
That's really interesting. So you got to uni, you put, you started putting on this night, the Love and Peace Society. Uh, Peace and Love Society, did That's the psychedelic groove. And then, and then after I DJ'd, I thought, oh, I could do my own night and just play exactly the music I want to hear. Uh, after your first I, DJ experience, you thought, yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I need to find somewhere to do it, um, to play some music. And, uh, and make some posters, so which I did, and I, and I, I so I made the Natural High Club, and I did that um, at a place called Time Peace in Exeter, and um, yeah, and and then from there, uh, how come Exeter? Where were you at uh, uni at the time? Well, I wanted to go that I wanted to go to university because I wanted to leave home, and that's that's what you did, and you could get a grant from the government in those days, so it was kind of which was very good so you it actually paid for your accommodation and um and it for me it was near the sea and i'd noticed that the south coast seemed to have better weather when i watched the weather over the years there was more sunshine although i did later discover exeter got a lot of rain um <laughs> but and well and the proportion of girls to to blokes was like 70 to 30 or or, or something like that and it was near the sea so i thought that's the best place to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. So, so okay. my time at Exeter, I did that. I started a True Groove radio show. Um, so I'd, because um, it was a university radio that no one could really hear because the transmitter didn't really work very well. But there was a chance for myself and a, a housemate called Simon McCleave, who's now a crime author. <laughs> That's what he does. Wow. And, um, yeah, so he was from London, so he knew a bit more about hip hop and that side of things. And um, yeah, so we did that together. And then um, yeah, so I was I was really into the whole thing. Uh, I was lucky enough. Soul to Soul came to the university wow. in like uh, 1990 or something. So I met all them. I was trying to establish who was the Funky Dread, and they were like, "It's a movement. It's an attitude." And <laughs> and um, so so that was great. And um, yeah, and and I met um, Frank Tope, who's been a, a friend and and now is in the music industry. He like san, signed Franz Ferdinand for the he does Universal Publishing and stuff. But for many years he was, yeah, he was he was my guide to what's happening in London and particularly jazz music. And um, so yeah, he's a friend of since then. And he'd come and DJ at the first psychedelic groove because he had he knew, and that's when I heard one of my favourite records, which is uh, uh, "Can You Feel It, Mr. Fingers," uh, mm. which uh, I'd recommend to anyone if you want to know what deep house is. That is basically it. The instrumental "Can You Feel It, Mr. Fingers," um, and uh, oh, uh, yeah. After that, after Exeter, I was in London. Um, I got. I got a job. I thought it was taking art exhibitions around Europe, but it was a PR company, and and I got the job, not knowing what PR was. But anyway, I wanted to go to London. Went there, and and I met Simon, and that was kind of, I was doing some tracks. He was doing with with like one guy I'd met um, who was into trance. I wasn't so into trance, and uh, but he had some equipment. And then I I met Simon through some friends of friends. And uh, yeah, initially I went in w with two other friends. We hired him and his mate who did something called Helicopter to engineer for us for a, a day. And they charged us something like £10 an hour. Wow. Which which we thought was quite expensive, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah but but that was that was good and that was kind of the beginning of kind of doing stuff and I met Simon and after doing a couple of these sessions I said um he seemed to be able to work really fast and kind of the ideas would come into reality quickly right. and um and I said would you be up for doing a, a project based on American House and and the kind of I was really into the underground scene that kind of came out of New York and Chicago mm-hmm. and uh and it around that time 91 92 and uh and and he said yes and that was kind of the beginning of basement jacks which started in about 94 so uh 93 94 right yeah okay so but, but probably it, it was to describe the whole new york sound and and what kind of where it's coming from probably the record that i really fell in love with and that really kind of links me to the also the first time i did e I uh, I heard this record at the end of the night as well. Um but I'd heard it first of all like dancing and then next time when I was working as a landscape gardener in the holidays <laughs> as a student and they played it on on Radio 1 which used to be quite good in the afternoons in the old days. It was quite it was a uh, not as kind of personality led. It was kind of it was more fun, I think. So right. but that that society, isn't it? Everyone takes themselves a bit seriously nowadays. It's kind of like a you know, they're into their image quite a lot, you know, with the Instagram culture and everything. Got you. Right. So yeah. it was more about the music back then than it yeah. was. And being... actually, Steve Wright in the afternoon, he used to have comedy characters. So it's quite funny. So when we were all all there, landscape gardening, digging and chopping and, and mowing, uh, me and my friends in Sheffield in uh, the Sainsbury's car park area. <laughs> um, and we had the radio on and we were listening to Frankie Knuckles, the, wh- the whistle song, and we thought... And and it was an amazing moment. We were all dancing there, kind of like mowing, chopping. It was the best. <laughs> and then when I got... And in then, the car park or is this landscape gardening? No, no in the garden, in the kind of like grassy area n- <laughs> n- around the car park. Yeah, so there were people going to do their shopping. <laughs> but, so that was, um, yeah, but... And then, well, years later with Basement Jacks, I got to meet Frankie Knuckles, which was amazing. But also when I went to London to my first kind of underground rave, um, it was called Yellow Book and Andrew Weatherall was DJing there. Frank, my my friend, told me about this. And uh, so I I did some E, which was apparently very pure MDMA, which actually didn't feel like you were on anything. I just felt completely normal. But then the, the night finished. I was like, oh, I'm not tired. (laughs) <laughs> so, I can I said, imagine with you actually, yeah. Felix, that ecstasy wouldn't touch the sides. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, the the last record of the night was Frankie Knuckles' "The Whistle Song," and and he started the D, Andrew Weatherall, who passed away, rest his soul last year. Um, he played a, a, it was Aretha Franklin's gospel album. Like uh, there was a in the morning, some kind of very moving speech. And then this this slowly glided out of it, and um, the whistle song, and it. Uh, I think it's a beautiful piece of music, and probably with Basement Jacks, that was the kind of thing I was trying to aspire to. Something sophisticated with depth, with emotion, and it kind of seemed to be of a higher sensibility. It was like reaching for, you know, it was positive. There was, there was a lot of positivity, and Frankie Knuckles was there at the beginning of House, which was all about unity and bringing you know, whoever together from the, the fringes of society. So I, I really connected to that whole message. And this kind of record encapsulates Deep House that that whole time for me. 
So, well, this, so this is Frankie Knuckles' the whistle song, and it's either the Eric Cupper mix or the Sound Factory mix. And the Doing Sound my job Factory, for me, Felix. <laughs> the Sound Factory was an amazing club in New York. Okay, let's listen to it. take it back a little bit so you'd started up your own night in Exeter mm-hmm. how did that go great yeah pe- some people came uh, we made I don't know we probably made some money I made enough money to buy some more records to play at the next one so what so. was the when was the first vinyl that how old were you when you bought your first vinyl then? Uh, well probably uh, 11 with my my sisters um, that was one Christmas and um, so we had to buy a record that all of us could like. And uh, we bought an album by the Nolan Sisters, who were like some kind of uh, feel-good sort of Irish trio. And um, they did Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which was a song we'd heard of, and some some other songs. And um, so we decided we'd heard of the artist. And uh, and it was three women and, and my, my sister. So maybe I was the third woman in the group or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so so that was uh, the first album, and I, yeah, I I suppose probably because because I grew up and I didn't have any money when I was young, which was fine. I'd get whatever I got from jumble sales because the church jumble sales would happen, but I'd always get in early because I was the vicar's son, <laughs> so so I I could get the 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 pick of the crop. So it's kind of um, that's where I bought my my ACDC Back in Black album from. <laughs> it was a bit warped and. Um, yeah, the best disco album in the the world, which I got at eleven as well, which I loved, and that was that was from a friend. Um, yeah, his sisters, they was they were at the local garage, and and they said we've got two copies of this record, so they gave one to me. So uh, so basically, a lot of my life has been quite organic, just whatever happens. Well, I tend to think that by the time you reach 11, because, again, this is when my sister gave me the computer with your album on and many, many others, the, yeah. the, the singles, I kind of feel like if you're getting a musical intelligence at 11 years old, you're, you know what your plan is. If you can feel music on an intelligent, emotional level at 11, yeah. it, it, it's quite a telling sign that you're going to go on to do good things in music um so you obviously always knew that that was destined for you then I'm guessing uh no no not at all when I went to London I why thought, did you move to London uh in 91 but why why uh because London was where everything happened right uh, at the time if you wanted to buy records you had to go to well when I was in Exeter I got the train to Bristol because that was a main centre and uh, yeah, you go to London or Nottingham or Leicester. It had to Manchester was like happening a lot at that time. And actually, when I first met Tom York at university, it was I met he was the first person I met. And um, and we were both like, oh, we're not sure about this Exeter place. We should have gone to Manchester because Manchester's really cool and where everything's happening. 
Yeah. But, so um, it could have ended up anywhere, really. You could have ended up in Manchester, Bristol or London. Uh, yeah, but I wouldn't go to London because it was too expensive for students. Uh, that seemed like a, yeah, not right, a good move. So you left uni, <laughs> went to uni, uh, left uni, went to London. Yeah. Um, can you, because you briefly mentioned you meeting Simon through some friends of yours. From London. Um, so through friends I knew at university, some of the, well, the guy I did the radio show, I've got three friends called Simon, and it was through, through the three Simons I met this other Simon, which is a, <laughs> and you were talking about Glitterbox earlier and that's Simon Dunmore. So the world seems, I'm surrounded by Simons everywhere. <laughs> So, because I've heard, right, so the basement Jack Simon. Yeah. I've heard many stories. So I heard that you met on a Thames Riverboat party. I heard you met in a club in Clapham, in a pub in Clapham. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Which one? Uh, the, the pub, pub in, in Clapham. Clapham. I think, yeah, that's what I think. Although I think he said that he met me before that, but I, I can't quite remember. I know then we definitely talked and um, yeah, and he had some music equipment, so I was like, "Ding, that's kind of great." Yeah. <laughs> so, how did? Uh, when was the moment that you knew you guys were onto something? When did you did you start producing together or DJing together? How did all that start? Um, well, so I met him through some friends of friends, and then and then I um, asked him if he was up for doing this project that that I wanted to do an EP and and make music with this New York style. And uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. And then we'd, we'd meet every, I don't know, every two or three months or something like that. And then we did that for a year. And uh, I'd bring loads of current buns, bananas and, and food to keep us going because I thought, well, you're going to need to... <laughs> you keep... are adorable, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, uh, so was this producing then, sorry, or, or was this mixing? Uh, well, this oh, is you to, were make, make, you were to make music. The... So uh, oh, I'd, got you. I'd kind of bring lists of samples I had and, and write down on pieces of paper like three minutes, 21, a uh, cough sample, you know, five minutes, a uh, scream, you know, and get all the samples, we put them together and that's when we made... So over that year we made EP1 um, and and I knew one guy um, who worked in the music industry, so I sent it to him. He worked at East West Records and... Um, he was a DJ at university too. And um, anyway, I sent it to him. He's like, no, no, you know, it needs to be remixed, blah, blah, blah. And um, and I thought, okay. Uh, so, and then there was Nervous Records in New York that I thought was really cool and Strictly Rhythm. So they were basically the Basement Jack's logo at the beginning, which is like a face, love heart face. It's a bit graffiti. Um, so that was based on Nervous Records logo because I thought that was really very cool. And a, and a friend from Leicester, Joel, he did that. Right. And um, You were very resourceful. You knew a lot of people that you could kind of call up and go, can you make me a logo? What do you think of this EP? Yeah, yeah but the thing is, nobody <laughs> nobody was anything like like Joel. Like, we were making music. I, I met Simon. Simon had put one record out. So he'd, he'd done a white label with um, uh, a couple of his friends, Jeff, which was in the basement where we did the first stuff. Right. And um, so he'd done, so he'd actually done one and it was like, but at the time also, you, I don't know, people made records. It, it, you just had to make one and then press it 
I mean, that's all it was. And then you'd give it to people and try and persuade them to play it. I was going to ask you about the pirate radio culture um, and if if that was a thing in your kind of... Um, uh, in your makeup, uh, whether pirate radio was something. But I, I did wonder if it was or wasn't because you were listening to stations over in the States and obviously pirate radio, if I'm right, was um, kind of locally based from where the antenna was, right? Yeah, yeah, but, the well, I listened to the Benji Candelario mix show, but that's Choice FM, which was based in Streatham or Brixton. Okay, and he uh, was... But they, he, he so was he playing. used to send probably a tape over to them, a DAT tape or something, and they'd play the, the, the Saturday night mix show live from New York. So, I mean, right. it, it wasn't live from New York, but it sounded so good and sophisticated compared to what was was playing around. I mean, there, there was Kiss FM in London um, was happening in uh, the Midlands. There was something like Rave FM or something like that. But, and that was kind of all kind of hardcore, like, rave scene, which is another thing that I was into. Um, hardcore? Uh, yeah, well, it was kind of rave. It, um, it was called hardcore back in the day, but, but basically it was like jungle drum and bass, the beginning of all that. So, right. I suppose so, uh, the hardcore that I grew up on wasn't anywhere. I suppose I was happy hardcore. I hit that kind of era. So I'm guessing Yeah, well, that, that was like kind that. of one strand. It, that went into <laughs> several strands. It became kind of jungle. It became kind of and anything that... Uh, that was what was really nice at the time. Genres were quite fluid. Like when I started DJing, often I wanted to try and get hip house music because I thought that was, that was the best because I liked the rapping and I liked house music. And um, but often the rapping was pretty bad, kind of a bit like modern music. Actually, <laughs> we've gone full cycle. And um, so uh, and and I think actually a lot of the hip hop house artists kind of faded away because the lyrics weren't good enough generally. Right. Um, but uh, well, probably the first track, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock, that was that was you'd play that with house music. So it was kind of like you'd mix it all together, and Della Soul and various other artists. Um, around there, but um, but the, but the hardcore this this whole rave thing. So that was happening alongside the jazz dance scene, and this stuff from New York. So and probably in '91, I think that's when I went to my first, well, m probably my only outdoor rave in the countryside, which was it was called Rain Dance, and uh, which was absolutely amazing. I remember me and and my friend. Uh, so actually, were we. I don't know, maybe, we must have been maybe 20, I don't know, perhaps. But we were we were lying on the floor because we never thought of doing that before. We, we did some ecstasy. So this was the second time I did ecstasy because I'd done it in London and I, I said to my friends, you've got to try this, this is amazing. <laughs> and um, so we was went to... Was this a legal rave or an illegal rave? Uh, well, they had a big marquee and tent, so I... I mean, I guess it was legal, but okay. I mean, so it wasn't like you were finding the address on a telephone box somewhere, or well, was... we had, yeah, we had to kind of. It wasn't quite that kind of undercover, although we did did have to find out where it was. It was meant to be in a field somewhere, right, like, in that direction. So it probably took us a while to get there, uh, and it was it was great. You'd walk over these hills, and then you'd go down into a valley. So obviously, some farmer had said, "Yeah, I'll take a load of money. <laughs> you, you can have my land." Uh, which is just like Glastonbury or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and there was a huge tent there, and that was probably it, actually, just a huge tent. And then and then, kind of some little area you had to get in. And, 
Yeah, so probably a record to describe that. Also, um, The Prodigy, Charlie Says, that that song was around at that time. So they were just kind of developing. Right. And um, the record I remember from that rave is called Midi Rain Eyes. And, um, yeah, and it just typifies the kind of, I don't know, it's it's kind of a bit mystical, a bit deep, but it's a, I don't know, mixes urban and ethereal kind of. But uh, it very much so. You're totally yeah. right, actually. We should listen to it. Midi Rain. Uh, the first album, Remedy, in 99, because um, that isn't house music at all, is it, really? It's it's very eclectic, and um, you kind of put your own label on it. I think I've got in my notes here that it was Punk Garage that you called it. Hmm. Um, so tell me all about this. Um, tell me how it got signed, and tell me how it kind of became what it became. Uh, well, the, the name Punk Garage, that came from my friend Frank, because... Um, because after the Taco Joe's, we did a couple of, basically just kept doing it in different venues in Brixton. And um, the George IV seemed like a good space, and um, uh, which was up Brixton Hill. Um, and we also did it in a crypt and got the, uh, this guy I found from Essex who had these enormous Function One speakers, which were like, the quality was amazing. So... Um, because again, I was trying to emulate what I imagined the Sound Factory in New York was, and the Ministry of Sound opened around—I I can't remember that—around that time. And these American DJs, like Benji Candelaro and Tony Humphries, they came over, so I got a chance to see them. And I'd go—I'd wow. go dancing there till it shut at nine thirty a.m. Wow! <laughs> and actually, they opened. They had no alcohol. As well. So because in New York they had no alcohol, which was like, uh, which is quite interesting. And yes, people did do drugs, but, and some people didn't. It's kind of, you had hardcore dancers who went to dance. So um, it was kind of a slightly different thing than, you know, definitely rave culture happened. Some people really got into drugs and rave and, you know, the Sun newspaper sort of said, we're all doomed, this is the end. But I mean, definitely people like me and a lot of people I'd meet, had a pure love for it and also yeah. kind of the the message in the music from Chicago and and the states it was kind of I mean people often play like an acapella um Jack is the one who gave us the key um to the house uh, is like you may be black you may be white you may be Jew you, you may be gentile it doesn't matter in our house and Jack had the groove and it's it was all about house was all about this safe space where you could you could be whoever you wanted to be. It kind of like there was. It very much came from a gay scene in America. That's why actually, when we first went as Basement Jacks over to America, they they said we're a bit confused with your music because it's it's not it's kind of like black music and it's like white music, but uh, and then it's like <laughs> pop music and it's like and and we don't know which genre to put you in. And we were like, well, this is really stupid. And it and it made you realise how segregated America was in its thinking. Yeah, I bet. And um, well, yeah, which it, it's the same sort of thing over here as well, right? I'd have said. 
Uh, no, not as much. I mean, the, right. the thing is, probably the underground club scene was very, very mixed. It was kind of, it was about expressing yourself. If you're into fashion, you dress really fashionably. If you're gay and you wanted to express your gayness, that's, I, I don't know, it didn't really matter. And I think mm-hmm. what was amazing about probably Acid House and the rave culture at the time going out, there was this whole feeling that you'd go out and you'd meet everyone at the club and, yeah, it's like, oh, that one's a bricklayer, that one's going to be a doctor. It, I don't know. And that was really invigorating, that you're meeting yeah. people different than yourself. So it's kind of, um, and it was allowed at that point. I don't know. It, this This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you think that, um, because from my experience of raves and parties, I don't necessarily feel like that include. I think it's come round now, and I think this is why the importance of glitter boxes is is ma- like should and should have been really prominent in rave culture anyway. But I'm really happy that something like glitter boxes background that celebrates, um, you know, different races and 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 different sexualities and stuff. But do you feel like that was sort of lost in the mid noughties well, definitely, probably when we started doing Basement Jacks in like 94, 95, I was, I wanted to do something that had the spirit of a few years before because it definitely felt like club music, definitely cocaine arrived. Right. And also club promoters started getting greedy, charging a lot to get in. And um, probably in 88 to 91, a lot of it was, I mean, with me putting on parties, you don't, You'd get a bit of money, but it wasn't money. Was only so you could buy records to put to put on the parties, and so you could afford some spray paint to make some banners to make the place look really amazing. So it was kind of, and probably with Basement Jacks, that was never about making money at all. It was kind of 
Right. I, I thought that because the music I was into was not fashionable. It was kind of a, it was like, it was an underground. It was really cool and it was, it was I loved it, but it wasn't mainstream at all. So mm. probably when Remedy happened, that, that, and Daft Punk as well, because we were, we kind of, um, when they first came to the UK and did their tour. You supported uh, them, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and they were into the same, you know, they liked Armin Van Helden and Sneak and the Chicago stuff. So we kind of shared a, a mutual love of, of this kind of, this scene. And, and, and it felt, it was, we were called uh, the Mongoloids, which is like Junior Sanchez in New York called this group. Well, basically, he probably thought it, it might rub off on all of them, but which was ourselves. And then there was Ian Pooley from Germany, Daft Punk from France, and then Armin van Helden, DJ Sneak, uh, Roger Sanchez. So there was this posse that, that were into, really into house music and hip-hop and underground music and about being radical with the way you made it. So you kind of, you were trying to break the formula and just say, look, I'm doing this. And like, wow, you did that. That's So in a way, it kind of pushed the envelope. And uh, I mean, definitely Masters at Work, Louis Vega and Kenny Dope, they were a massive influence and Mood to Swing were another name from the New York sort of sound. Um, yeah, Armin van Helden has a big prominence in um, in my kind of growing up as well. NYC beat and... Um, and, and and there's another there's another tune that he did that was very commercial, but I was into that kind of commercial yeah, yeah. Uh, dance um, two thousand and five six sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually, what did he say about you guys that you took house music and fucked it up the arse? Is that exactly? Where... It's, it's it's very American crude style, like <laughs> 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 quote. Yeah, but I mean that's that's I mean it is punchy and had impact. But basically, yeah, he was saying that we were kind of messing with the with the formula because it you know there was music probably after the the main innovation probably about when we started basement jacks a lot of people started being a bit generic and formulaic with what they were doing mm. so so as a result it became less alive you know of course youngsters coming up it was all new for them or whatever but yeah it seemed like we'd passed and this the hope i had that we were kind of this new peace and love generation, the Generation X. I thought that was so exciting that it seemed to have faded a bit. It was we weren't going to change culture completely, and the, the football hooligans who started doing E and are not fighting anymore. Like I don't know, they started doing coke. There was a bit of trouble. There was I don't know. Yeah. So um, yeah. So things kind of changed a bit, but that's probably when we were doing Basement Jacks in the kind of around that time and Daft Punk, we kind of created the next bit and there were a lot of people like us and there were, you know, that we were inspired by. Definitely like, I mean, Armin van Helden, we got it, we heard that he'd heard our record in in New York and um, that he really loved it and um, and that, uh, and he thought it, it was, B3 was the track and, um, and then later, I think it was maybe meeting him a couple of years later and like, wow, you're on Van Helden. He says, yeah, I love it. It's so European. And we're like, oh, like, oh no. Because, <laughs> because that was kind of like the kiss of death, really, because <laughs> the first record, we got shrink-wrapped, so it looked like it came from America. Right. Because to me, the records I wanted were all imports. They were, they were shrink-wrapped and they were the quality ones. So it's kind of, which is a bit kind of, yeah, 
It's, yeah, it's, it's probably being into the whole thing, which, you know, DJs were because they were trying to get the good tunes and and we had, you know, Louis Vega from, um, he was for the uh, Samba Magic, our track. He left a message on, on my house in Hearn Hill and Fiona, who, who I ran the parties with at the beginning, she said, check the answering machine because on, on the sending out the record to him, I'd put these kind of my telephone number as, you know, if you want to get in touch with the office, go there. <laughs> and, there was a, and there was a message and it says, yo, this is Louis Vega from the Sound Factory in New York. Your record is slamming. And it's like, oh, my God. And that wow. was, um, so not, not long after that, that's when I got made redundant. I thought, okay, give the, give the music a go. I'd worked out, I had six months before I'd have to go back and live with mum and dad. So it was kind of like... I had enough money to last for six months, so I thought I'd try the, the music for six months, and uh, that was in maybe 96, 97, and um, yeah, and actually it just carried on from there. And then XL Records, they came very early on. We had a record called Fly Life, um, which which was signed, that went out as a, a single, um, I'm just try- I can't quite remember the time, but basically Nick Worthington was a guy who came from Excel. He'd, oh, he'd come yeah. to our club nights and he'd stand at the back and um, and we got a meeting with him. Uh, well, he, he said uh, he got us to have a meeting, I think, and said, you know, how about you guys doing an album? And we were like, why would we do an album? It, um, you know, we're making kind of these these dance records i mean it's a nice idea but we met this singer karina joseph we could make her she could be the singer so maybe she'd be the artist and we could create uh the songs sound for her right yeah and um so and we put well karina was at my friend fiona's work and it was like she used to do the photocopying there and fiona said yeah this girl at work karina sings she she can hold a tune she's got a nice voice people really like her voice so she ended up being the first like vocal song we did, which was like one of our first EPs, and it was called Karina Joseph. And uh, you and called your EP her name. Well, well, yeah, she was the artist because she was singing. Very so. cool, very yeah, yeah. very cool. And uh, yeah, so we we thought we could make her a star, and we'd be the producers. We'd be like these New York producers, whatever. And um, New York producers from Leicestershire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Simon was born in Holland, and and yeah, oh, really? so. Yeah, so which is always they said we're the boys from Brixton, which always used to annoy me. I I love Brixton; it's a great place, and I, I lived there for I don't know twenty five years or twenty years or something. But um, yeah, but I, I always said no. I'm from Leicester. I was born in Leicester, <laughs> but the but the yeah media and press they like to have an idea of what you are. The parties were in Brixton. Right. I, I wanted to do them in the West End, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love that. I yeah. love I love how inclusive this whole story is and how conscious you've been throughout your career to lift other, not only people, but women and different people from different cultures and races and religions. I think that, and sexualities, I think that is... The coolest fucking thing, because I suppose in my experience of working with other producers um, and being a featured vocalist 
and, you know, wanting to be in the video and wanting to progress yeah, yeah. my own artist career, yeah. I found it very difficult and I very much found a, no, thank you for the song, thank you for the voice, but we don't want you a part of our creative. So yeah. it's so refreshing to hear, you know, that it was such an important thing for you. Um, well, but that's really, it's, it's putting the truth out there, isn't it? Because it's like, I, I do think it's a bit lame how the last few years that you'll hear some full-on vocal song and it's, like, by, you know, Gary someone, whatever, <laughs> yeah. and there's a picture of some, like, bloke. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, well, how much did he do? He mm-hmm. did, like, some beat loops and put a, a bit of a warp-warp bass. Exactly. Got and it some, and taken some And taken <laughs> some vocalist and, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of, yeah... But anyway, all these things are getting changed, you know, which is like people are waking up to it, which is brilliant. And, yeah, and they are. culture always swings one way and then the next. You know, something, I mean, dance music became very commercialised and we're part of that you know, you're happening and, and we're very lucky. Uh, thank you very much. I, I feel very grateful and, and blessed to have been part of it. But, well, um, was... you had the talent to back it up, and that's that's been so evident and has shown, and it's shone through more than anything uh, else. But also, more than anything, uh, being prepared to work for hours and hours and hours, like um, at the at the end when before when I was still at the office, I'd sometimes work nearly all night with Simon on tracks, and then I'd go to the office and I'd be so delirious, and um. But it, it was fine because also I met printers there. I learned about printing and for printing the records. I photocopied all the the, the things for the press sheets there, typed them up, and uh, and my friend Fiona she she managed to get a lot of the flyers printed out on her end as well. So we were all just like we would we would work was helping us to do our fun and and our creativity and kind of build things. So how do you, I'm guessing the gorilla suit era was such an incredible fun. And from what I've gathered over speaking to you over the last hour and a half, I feel like, I feel like dancing is so important to you. And that's so lovely to hear from somebody who makes music and DJs music is that actually it's, it's the vibe that it, and the feeling that it gives you. Is that live set that you did with the Gorilla Suit, was that kind of like a pinnacle of this is exactly where I saw the Jacks um, going or how, how, how well, did it all come around? Tell me. I, I mean, everything was like a slow kind of trajectory probably is um, and, and was all quite organic in the way that it built. So um, we DJed in, in Italy and then... They were interested in our music in America, like in the underground scene. And then the UK came next. The UK were a bit snobby and less welcoming, which was... Wow. which. It's funny in music that hopefully it doesn't exist so much now. But um, it's kind of... There's enough for everyone. And you, you, every... I don't know. It's, it's kind of not a... It's a competitive attitude probably in trying to, like, step on someone else's head or whatever. But... Um, yeah, so so probably doing that, we did, when we were doing the first album, that probably XL said, oh, you should do a live show. And um, and we were like, well, we, we DJ, but we, we don't like play live. And they say, it's fine, you, you can just kind of DJ. 
and have some, you know, so like you do at the, the George IV and the club. Because I always used to get people and friends to join in if there was someone walked in and said, I can rap. We'd like, there you go, there's a mic, rap. <laughs> and um, and uh, I had a, a friend from school, she came one time and she said, oh, yeah, I want to do my, my performance uh, walking. And so she just did slow walking. <laughs> Across the stage, <laughs> that was her thing, and um, and, and George, um, George Batista, who ended up being our percussionist at the beginning. I met him through a girl I'd met on on the tube at the Brixton riots, because uh, the it, the tube stopped at Stockwell and didn't get all the way to Brixton, and I met this girl and she was Brazilian. We were we were chatting, you know, oh, what's going on? Is it safe? Blah blah blah. And then, um, and she, actually, the first Karina Joseph song, uh, "Lonely," basically the words were about her because I met her and I fell in love with her. This girl that I'd met, uh, and um, and then "You Made Me Lonely" is a song. Uh, yeah, because a week later she said, I- "I'm moving back to Brazil," and um, oh, no. but actually, all the Brazilian connection that was made over. Like Brazilian dancers, the percussion, that was all through her. And then like, um, and George was a friend of hers and George used to come and play percussion at the clubs and then he toured with us to Japan and all over the world. Wow. And uh, he was good at capoeira, so he'd end up doing like all these capoeira and and like he loved taking his top off and like doing backflips and and ha- walking on his hands and all the girls going oh <laughs> so uh, and um yeah so that was great so it, he was a character and probably the live shows the idea was to reflect the music which is kind of we're human beings interacting so if someone's got a talent hopefully they can show that and whatever it is you know and um and probably if someone dances, like, oh, have you ever tried flamenco dancing? Could you maybe do flamenco for that bit for rendezvous? And, um, wow. yeah, a bit like this and like, yeah, that'll do a bit more like this and we just kind of make it up. And, uh, yeah, and probably the the live show, that grew so slowly and then the music, people got to know it, Remedy came out. And what you said about the kind of inclusion, I mean, the Remedy cover and the name for me was very much about that. And Remedy, the title, that came up from another friend who was uh, really into music called Finbar. And uh, he was quite good with words. So um, I think we had Universal Panacea or, or or something like that. That's where we got to. It was kind of like, a, well, basically Remedy said it, but the music heals and, and kind of, um, yeah, it, it's kind of the positive aspect. And the cover was different coloured bodies lying together because I thought it'd be really good to make it look like a landscape so that we're all, and you can't see who's who, but we're just, we're all different flesh and and they're all together. Oh, wow. um, But you're all in there. uh, Actually, George was in there and that was one of the most (laughs) embarrassing moments. when. uh, uh, So Rankin, the photographer, uh, he was going to do the cover, which was like, wow, he's a top guy. We got a, a top guy to do it. So I remember going to his studio and um, and he said, so what we talked about, yeah, so the bodies are lying inside these curtains in the middle of the office. <laughs> and he said, well, so how how do you want them? Do, do you want to go and arrange them? <laughs> how you want them? 
And I, and I remember just going so bright red and I walked in. I was like, oh, hello, George. And he was there naked, lying in front of me. I was moving his leg and his shoulder. And then the girl next to him, there were breasts and penises and just like... <laughs> Didn't know where to look. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and then, and then at the end of that process, actually, one thing I was unsure about, because Rankin thought it, he showed a little bit of breast and a, and a face which I was unsure about because I, I, I like the fact that it's kind of more anonymous. But, I mean, he was probably right. He wasn't, yeah, you know, that's that's the picture that he took. So. <laughs> oh, oh, so you were saying about uh, how things got bigger and bigger. Yeah, so by The live show got bigger and bigger. We got asked to go to different countries. We said yes and, and, and did everything the best we could. And if there was chance to have more budget or for anything, then it meant, oh, we could maybe have two more dancers or, or some brass players or... Or fucking Prince Harry in one of the gorilla suits. Yeah, that was at Hyde Park. So, um, wow. So, well, the gorilla actually started because Rudy, the the cover was a gorilla called Capito, uh, um, who was in the zoo in Barcelona, and um, and he was now Bino Gorilla, and uh, and I went to see him in the zoo, and um, I mean at the time. He was there eating some poo, and I, I, I it, it was kind of, it was really sad. But, but I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure about zoos whether we should have them at all. But, um, uh, but he was a beautiful animal, and uh, they said that um, in the wild that he'd been attacked because he was different than all the other gorillas. And I thought it's interesting that he's white and he's an outsider in a black community. We, I have yeah. to be very careful talking about this nowadays. Um, but I suppose more than anything is it's the idea that we make assumptions over the way someone looks, the way someone is, and being an outsider, maybe being a vicar's boy for me, mm. I always felt like I, I didn't I, I didn't go to all the I wasn't into football, I wasn't into I thought that was tribalistic and kind of like I don't know. Well, it was about violence often, so that yeah. didn't kind of relate in, in Leicester anyway it was um so uh yeah but the gorillas came from that probably because we had the gorilla on on the the cover uh Matt Maitland an amazing artist he this postcard I had whoops <laughs> uh this postcard that I had of the gorilla he took that he got it airbrushed by a guy in Germany and uh so there's so many layers to the creative process, and then the gorilla became associated with where, with where's your head at, and the the whole thing. So I, I can't remember where the, because initially we had a couple of stormtroopers as well that were like a bit like Planet of the Apes. So they were kind of um, <laughs> when we had brass players, they used to for where's your head at, they'd they'd put on the stormtrooper outfit. So it's like people would try different bits, but it it just it seemed to kind of the wildness. And um, also nature has always been a big theme. We did Back to the Wild and kind of like this, this connection or not connection to nature, which I think is really important. And that's if you look at Extinction Rebellion and everything going on, it's all about what are we doing to this world, living yeah. selfishly, greedily. And um, yeah, but, but the gorillas came from that and each time any friend or someone who wanted to do something would say oh do you want to be a gorilla so we've had lots of people <laughs> mike from the streets and yeah 
I can't remember. Robbie Williams did want to do it. I can't remember if we let him in the end or not. <laughs> I think he must have done it. Maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, well, we were generous enough. But well, and then Prince Harry did it at, at Hyde Park. And, that's uh, very cool. I heard you rugby tackled him. Uh, yeah. Well, he came, and I think he wanted to meet Dizzy Rascal most that was kind of on his hit list right. so i met dizzy dizzy and we were there and um and I, I met him and and i remember yeah his there there were a couple of like side bodies with him um and they said i said oh, hi nice to meet you blah blah, blah. and uh they said oh are, are you are you australian or swedish or something uh, i said no 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 i'm english and they they were being like really offish and weird with me, which I don't know why. And they they were being quite hooray Henry ish, and um and Harry said, "Don't listen to those pricks." And I thought, <laughs> good for you. He he kind of cut them dead, and um and he was really nice and really straightforward. And uh, and uh, I can't remember if he yeah he probably met members of the band, and it, it was just very gracious and and and. And good, but I said to him just after speaking to him, I said, you know, if you want to be a gorilla uh, on the stage, <laughs> it's fine. You know, just uh, let let our crew know, and and uh, and then I forgot about it completely. And then when Where's Your Head Out was on, and and I was there performing it, singing, and uh, me and uh, I can't remember who was Ronda or Cassie at the time, who was my sidekick, and um, we were kind of we'd always like fake wrestle and kind of jump around and and just go quite bonkers um yeah which my sister my sister actually had a bit she saw a clip of this and she was she said she was ashamed when she saw her brother kind of like you know throwing some woman around on stage (laughs) and I was like oh no but and I said the whole message of the song is like who are you what are you doing and and it's like it's kind of like theater but but anyway in, in Hyde Park this gorilla came on and I always, the the brief of the gorilla was you try and get into the part a bit. Don't just be like someone on stag do kind of <laughs> doing like disco dancing or whatever. And uh, anyway, so this time it was a bit, there was a bit of a stag do gorilla <laughs> and I was like, that, that can't happen. So I went over and knocked the gorilla down because I was, you know, <laughs> messing with nature. And then, uh, yeah, and then at the side of the stage, I saw someone with a kind of little like earpiece security. Take him out! Guy. Take him out! <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no!" And then I realised, and uh, <laughs> so I probably stroked him or something. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and and then afterwards, uh, coming out after the show finished, uh, I saw the uh, the wardrobe uh, girl Molly, and um. And she looked very, she was beaming from ear to ear because he was just about, he'd just taken off his trousers in front of her in this little <laughs> uh, curtained off area. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I saw him and I said, oh, so sorry. I mean, the, the sad thing was I did a kind of semi-curtsy. Yeah, but, I've got this in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, which was, you know, I, I, I don't know where that came from. That's probably growing up and watching the Queen's Speech every year or whatever, all your life. But anyway, <laughs> I said sorry, and he said I, I had the best fun of my life just then. Oh, bless! And uh, and I thought, how great, you know. So uh, that is great. Yeah. 
Well, look, Felix, I could actually physically talk to you for hours. Um, I find you very, very fascinating, and your passion and enthusiasm for music is is infectious. Um, I will tell you a little... Well, I've got a rap now, but I will tell you a little story that when I was on... This is what I was saying, which is how I met Vula. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was on The Voice in 2012, and I actually asked to sing Good Luck um, by you guys. And it was the track that kept me in the live shows for another week. Um, and it was quite... It was a bit iconic because I had this long cable that people were having to pull along the entire stage, but I had so much fun singing this. And it is a very big, important track in my life. So let's listen to Good Luck and then I'll, um, I'll ask you my final question. podcast is all about how rave has changed over the years and mm. you have definitely um i was born in 94 so mm. you guys were together even before i was kind of considered um yeah. so how my last question how does it feel influencing the next generation and how do you think rave has changed uh i think more than anything it, i've really felt this the last year or so we we seem to be back in like 88, 89. And it's quite interesting with the pandemic that people have been doing free parties and yeah. raves have been happening in the countryside. And the music is the same. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like acid has all come back. And actually the the mentality of what rave was then of kind of like, who cares about the system? It's like we want to be together and express ourselves and uh, it's it's a strong feeling. It's kind of like, and for me, probably with the the basement jacks thing, and and always music, is it has to have like a strength of presence. You have to be connected to it, and and I think a lot. It feels like there's a bit of a, a move away from the produced perfect kind of world, and to to get something a bit rawer. That seems to be coming back, which is great, you know. And and you know, for the young people now. Yeah, I'm I, now kind of take life and just kind of and and live and and don't be kind of told what you can't do. I mean, the, the whole basement jacks thing, like so many doors were shut, but we just did it anyway. And slowly people came on board, but it's probably yeah, 94 to 99. It took 5 years before people were listening. But those 5 years were probably the best. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. So it's kind of like, and I remember every party, it just felt like it couldn't get any better. And we had people who'd been drawn to it who were really into the the vibe and the ethos and uh, kind of a, and I think having vibe and ethos is, that's maybe one thing that's disappeared. It's like, it's kind of having principles as of who you want to be as a human being and and what you do in the world, putting them in the middle of what you do and kind of, it, it gives you strength, I think. 
and um, which is which is definitely listening to your heart and saying this is how I truly feel. They might all be doing that. Who cares? They will die. You will die. You know, live your life. Well, Felix, it's been an absolute honour and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the Art of Rave, Basement Jacks. Everybody, thank you so much. Art of Rave is presented and written by me, Becky Hill. It is a strawberry blonde production for my record label, Echo Records. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.